Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, Paul wrote to the church there. Um, excuse me, I've got to flip to it in the Bible here. I have it in my notes, but I need to have the text open. There we go. Having first set forth the victory of Christ, uh, as he says that Christ has t- disarmed principalities in verse 15 and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Uh, at the cross, Christ bore our sins. You know, we just read in Mark about how uh, Satan's divided against Satan, he, his kingdom will be destroyed. And, you know, pause, well, his kingdom is being destroyed. And, but Satan didn't oppose Satan. Well, he kind of did. He did oppose himself, but not knowingly. When he crucified Christ, and the Bible talks about had they known what they were doing, the rulers of this world would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, Satan destroyed himself in his hatred against the Lord Jesus by having him put to death. He ended up destroying his kingdom because when Christ died, he took away our sins, and then he rose again from the dead and defeated death. So praise God that Christ defeated Satan uh, and there's no wisdom or power against God. So that's really what Paul is saying in verse 15. Having disarmed principalities, that is all, all principalities, rule and authority, whether in the unseen or seen world, and powers or authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Then in verse 16 we read the application of this truth. Christ is victorious. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He's defeated all these things. You don't need to try to placate lesser spirits through some kind of fake worship or something, and that's Paul's going to address it. So now he makes the application. All right, what does this all this mean? I think I've mentioned before, uh, if you read John Chrysostom's sermons, he was the patriarch of Constantinople, very evangelical, loved the Lord. Um, he was you know, a Greek-speaking preacher. Chrysostom actually means golden-mouthed because he was very eloquent. He was kind of the Spurgeon of his day, we might say, if you're familiar with Charles Spurgeon or some of the other men in our day and age that are eloquent in their proclamation. Some of us do do the best we can with what we've got. But Chrysostom, he expounded the scriptures. And I mentioned to you, this was in the 5th century A.D. And you can reconstruct pretty much the almost the entire New Testament, with the exception of one or two verses, simply from the collection of his sermons, because people wrote them down. This was in Constantinople, today Istanbul, uh, the Hagia Sophia, when it was a Christian basilica church. They wrote down his sermons, we say, and they've been passed down, because they were so good. And... Uh, they're loved by the people that read them, but halfway through his sermons, or two-thirds through, he would always stop, and you read it, it's, you can see him, he, and back in those days, everybody stood, sometimes the ministers would sit, but as he's there standing in front of the, the people, he would say, after expounding the scriptures, he'd say, but what does all this mean? <laughs> and then he'd begin to make beautiful application, how should this truth affect you in your living? And that's why his sermons have continued on. You can go online, and you can by John Chrysostom sermons, he translated into English and the Gospels or uh, any place in the New Testament, a lot from the Old, because uh, they're, they're very relevant. He preached Christ and he stayed close to the Word, so they're timeless in that sense. But Paul does the same thing. Chrysostom was just imitating the Apostle Paul. That's why Chrysostom's sermons had power. And really what Paul is doing here in verse 16, he's saying, after expounding these glorious truths of the victory and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, it all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. That Christ is God incarnate. He's not a lesser deity. He is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
everything that God is, Jesus is, because he is the Son of God throughout all eternity, the second person of the Trinity. These glorious truths, and so Paul is really saying, what does all this mean? And so he begins to make application in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So Paul says, don't let people judge you. And that word judge, by the way, it's a really interesting Greek word. It's not just a word for like, you know, an impartial judge in, a, in the Olympic Games or in a contest or even a judicial judge in a legal matter. Uh, the idea, it's, it's not someone who judges you. It's someone who's corrupted and prejudiced and biased. Brabuo uh, is, is the word meaning to, to render a decision. Kata means down, okay? And so this is a kata brabuo, okay? Um, Paul's saying, don't let anybody do that to you. It means, and that word kata brabuo means condemn down, judge down. In other words, against you. So Paul's saying, don't let that happen. That's an imperative. Now he's not writing just you know, to anybody. He's writing to the church, corporate. This is in the plural. But it's in the imperative. He's saying, you are not to allow anyone to condemn you. Don't put up with it. Don't tolerate it. In what areas? In food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And some say, oh, so we don't have to keep one day holy. Paul's not talking about that, I don't believe. He's trying to say you don't have to honor one day in seven. Because down below, when he defines what he's talking about in verse uh, 21, he says, do not touch that as people come and say to you, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You know, oh, that's, you can't do that. Uh, which all concern things which perish, with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So he's not saying you should just throw out God's law. And I've heard people take, you know, oh, it mentions the Sabbath, so we don't have to do anything on the Lord's Day other than what we want to do. That's not what he's saying. There were other Sabbaths in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 23, 24, and 32, in verse 34, you find the festivals of the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Weeks, uh, Passover, those days were called Sabbaths, if you want to look them up, those are the references, Leviticus 23, 24, 16, 31, Leviticus uh, 23, 32, and 39, and also chapter 25, 2 and 4. So what Paul's saying is, you know, this, this, these, these festival Sabbaths, where there was a lot of holy days, he said, don't anybody judge you on that, it's not just a <gasps> You didn't keep Passover? You don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles? You don't set the Day of Atonement aside? <coughs> you know, you're just not much of a Christian. You're not a super Christian like our group is or like I am. Paul says, don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. And he tells you why. Okay? So they're a shadow of things to come. When they were legitimate, that is before the Old Testament or the Mosaic economy, we should say, was fulfilled in Christ and done away with, those were legitimate. But in Christ, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. And so we, why don't we keep it? Well, because the New Testament says we, we shouldn't. We don't have to. They were shadows. They looked forward to Christ's coming. He's already come. That's why circumcision was put aside. I think I mentioned that the last week or the week before. Uh, that's why circumcision is put aside. It pointed to the work of the Messiah in regenerating his people. Christ has come and he is doing that. And that's why you know, baptism speaks to the present tense idea. And that's why that ceremony was instituted by Christ and continued on in the church. Uh, because it speaks of the things that we presently have 
But here we see, although there are, there are promises in those, but he's saying these things have been set aside. They're, they're no longer binding. Why? They were a shadow of things to come. They pointed to Christ. But the substance, literally the body, is of Christ. Uh, he's saying that the one casting that shadow in the Old Testament, that shadow show, it was Jesus. So Paul's here contending for the true spiritual nature of true acceptable worship of God or to God against those who make ceremonial observances everything in their religion. There's a lot of that going around. All the ceremonies of the Mosaic administration of the covenant pointed to the person and work of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Those ceremonies were at best shadows, that's what Paul says, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming in the flesh. That's why he says that literally, when it says the substance, the Greek is literally tasoma. Soma means body, the body of Christ. Tasoma to Christu. Now that he has come, the shadow show has ended. We've got the reality. You know how foolish it is, like if you're walking down the street and you see somebody, maybe somebody you, as a friend or somebody in your family that you really love. And you go, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. And, oh, it's so great. I really love you. I've missed you. And they say to you, why are you talking to my shadow? I'm right here. <laughs> you know, um, you might go, oh, well, okay. And that's what Paul's saying. You know, we don't worship God in shadows now. We have the substance. We have the reality. The body is of Christ. Now he has come, and again, the shadow show has ended. Those making new ceremonies, well, that's been a problem in the church, hasn't it? Unwarranted by the word of God. If you think about all the processions and all the holy days and all the this, that, and the other stuff, and they always, it's always introduced into the church, or it has been historically under the guise, well, well, this will be helpful. There wasn't one false man-made tradition introduced in the church in the Middle Ages it wasn't brought in under the heading of, this will really help people. That's why we make statues of the saints and of Mary and of, well, she's a saint, uh, and we make representations. Nobody's seen Jesus in, you know, since he was here, but we make what our imagination, we think he looked like. And so, you know, that helps people. God says you're not to make idols. And so when men leave off from worshiping God according to his word, they move into this idolatrous uh, realm where they worship God according to the dictates of their own imaginations. And so those who are making ceremonies unwarranted by the word of God do so out of their own will worship, and that's what Paul calls it, established and practiced according to the dictates of men in opposition to the finished work of Christ. So those things are not harmless. When you introduce innovations in God's worship and say, well, this will really help people. I remember somebody one time years ago, this is a young lady. This was, to me, this is kind of the uh, apex of what can go wrong in a Reformed church. It's real sweet. She came up and she said, would it be okay if we set some stuffed teddy bears on the communion table for worship? <laughs> she thought that would be really cute and nice and cuddly and warm. And I tried not to be, you know, Pastor Stark, the Calvinist, you know, but uh, I just told her, I said, well, no, that's actually not something we can do. We're not supposed to do stuff like this. She, she was okay. She said, oh, okay. She just thought that would be something nice. Okay? Lots of, I'm surprised. Uh, there's probably somewhere there's a church that's doing that, all right? But we're not supposed to. And just because it seems nice to us, we have to go, is this in the Bible? Is this in the Bible? There is so much going on in the world, and it was starting in Paul's day. So much going on in the churches that has nothing to do with what's in the Bible. 
because people fell asleep and they were, well, this might be helpful, so we go ahead and allow it. If it's not in the Bible, we've got to be very careful about what we introduce. God's worship is beautiful if you follow the scriptures. It's rich, there's depth, there's meaning. But when you start introducing man-made ceremonies, you're running into problems. Man is by nature a religious creature. So some think the multiplication of ceremonies and rituals will help keep men walking in the truth. But the opposite's true. They begin to be idolaters when those things are done. It is the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of God's believing elect ones that keeps them in the truth by the word of God as they live their lives and worship according to the precepts of Scripture in praise and worship and gathering together uh, you know, on the Lord's Day with God's people and at other times to worship Him. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting in the movie realm, it, particularly if you watch old films, the, the worship of the Roman Catholic Church is really easy to film. Okay, that's why, you know, they don't, you don't see a lot of, you know, where, the, where they have to have some kind of religious thing. They usually have a Roman Catholic, and if they're going to do anything about worship, they usually bring that in because their worship is very highly ceremonial, highly visible, and highly non-scriptural if you just follow the Bible. So Roman worship, though, it's easy to film. That's why, God knows, yeah, the, the movie makers seem to really like Roman worship. Um, because it's visible in its ceremonies and in its idols. You know, you see the person praying to the statue of the Virgin Mary for her lover or husband or whatever who's in war and somehow he gets spared. Like, oh, that's so beautiful. No, actually, in reality, that would be horrible. You're not supposed to bow down in front of idols. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. So if we're introducing visible ceremonies, contrary to the Word of God or extra to the Word of God, we're really rebelling against God's word. Carnal men are pleased and happy with carnal worship, that is, ceremonies. They love it. Spiritual, regenerate persons want to worship God according to what pleases Him and what is regulated by the holy precepts of His word in Scripture. Worship's not about you. It's not about me. You know, when, when sometimes people will say, well, I didn't get much out of that. Well, that's possible, okay. You know, I, I always remember Babe Ruth, he struck out more than he got home runs. So sometimes the sermon's lacking, all right, I get that. But the worship of God, if you're not getting much out of it, that's because you're probably there thinking that you're the one that needs to be placated and made happy. You will be happy if you're worshiping God, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And you may go, well, I don't like that. Okay, fine. What does this Bible say? Does the Bible say God doesn't like it? You know, and because that's really what we need to be asking. We've got, you know, in our culture and society, this is why the evangelical church is basically, it not maybe not quite totally shipwrecked, but it's on the rocks. Because everything is like, oh, she come to our church because Jesus can do so much for you. You don't hear people saying, you need to be in church, you need to be under the Word of God, you need to be reading your Bibles, you need to repent, because God is holy, and you owe him everything, and he actually owes you nothing, but he will give you everything in his son because he is a gracious God. We don't come and tell people that. We don't say, worship's not about you. It's about you coming before God with gratitude and thanksgiving and worshiping him. And if you're not doing that, good news for you. There's a remedy called repentance. Cry out to God and say, Lord, make me a true worshiper. 
I want to worship you. I want to love you as you deserve to be loved, Lord, with all my heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Because it's not about me. It's about the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may God give us grace. But again, carnal men love carnal worship because it's ceremonies. And if you go through the ceremony, well, everything's okay, right? You know, you get the whatever the, the particular ceremony is. Well, I did that, so I know I'm okay with God. Don't let carnal persons condemn you because you believe that Christ is everything. And if you have him, you have all you need. And worship is not so much visible and ceremonial as it is spiritual and scriptural. We administer the sacraments with biblical simplicity. Christ did appoint ceremonies in his church. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there's not a lot of whole rigmarole about those. If you look in Corinthians, and we read it pretty much every Lord's Day, when Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Wait a minute, Paul. Paul didn't say, you know, I thought up this really cool ceremony that I thought would be nice for you guys to do when you get together to help you remember Jesus. He doesn't say that. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul did not innovate. He passed on the tradition that he had been received, that he had received rather from God. Paul says in verse 18, let no man beguile. Here's another one of those imperatives. Let no man beguile you or cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. By the way, the word worship there in verse 18, where it says worship of angels, it's not the usual word, proskinu, uh, uh, anyway, the, the usual word, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce it, uh, that's used for worship in Greek. This is the word threskea. You guys say more, right? No, actually, threskea means outward ceremonial worship. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. He uses a word that means just that, outward external ceremonial worship. So he said, let no man beguile you, cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, that is ceremonies where, oh, we're honoring all the heavenly beings, etc. Intruding into those, now this is interesting, Intruding into those things which he has not seen. A lot of the modern versions take out that word not, things he has seen. The actual, I believe, the authentic text and the overwhelming majority of manuscripts uh, in which has been passed on and translated, the, the real word of God says, Intruding into those things that he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. What's that mean? Well, he's claiming visions or dreams or prophecies. And he's claiming he's seen stuff. Now some say, yeah, but this person, he said he saw it. And is Paul saying this fellow hasn't actually seen it? He's not seeing what he's claiming that he saw. Okay? He's seeing figments of his own imagination. But because he's religious, he claims authority for himself. This happens. This has been a plague on God's people for a long time. In Deuteronomy, chapter 13, at verse 1, Paul says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Ooh, we have that going on in our own city. Big apostolic movement here. Okay, A lot of money to be made if you're a false prophet. So they give you this sign or they do a wonder. And they note, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Well, some say, well, that's the mark of authenticity. If they say something's going to happen and it happens, that's how you know it's a true prophet, isn't it? Keep reading. 
And the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, then he, he adds this to what he's claiming, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. So notice, it's not the miracles, it's not the signs, it's not the wonders, it's what kind of doctrine is coming out of that person's mouth. And if they're able to perform wonders and miracles, but they're leading you away from the God that's revealed in Holy Scripture, something's wrong. Know what, Paul, the, what Moses said. By the way, this is under the Mosaic administration. The church does not have the power of capital punishment. Okay, Civil magistrate does, but here, in those days, the civil and the ecclesiastical government were united in Israel. But here's what God says. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God sovereignly has allowed this false prophet or this dreamer of dreams to come among you and spread this garbage because God's testing you. Now, God knows what's in you already. Okay, When God tests us, it's more to show us what's in us. Okay, He's letting his people know you really need to judge all things according to the word of God. Whether you love the Lord your God, well, how do you how do you do that? By taking everything that's being taught and going to the scriptures. Remember the Bereans? They were more noble than the Thessalonians. They tested everything. To so whether you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments. Notice He's taking them to the written Word of God and obey His voice. Well, does that mean what pops into your head? You should just do it. No, He's talking about the Word of God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now again, under the Mosaic administration, this was to be dealt with with a measure of severity because they were trying to lead the people into apostasy. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because this is not a ceremonial issue now. It's now a moral issue. It's a violation of the first and second commandment. Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. How do you know what God commanded you how to walk? In His Word. That's how you know. These are guys that are leading you away from Scripture is what we would say today. Okay, uh, As the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. So, back in Colossians, Paul says in verse 18, let no one cheat you. I think it was uh, Aesop's story about the dog that saw his image in the pond. What well, he saw, he saw a dog with a big bone in his mouth. Because the dog had a big bone in his mouth. Okay, Now that's not you, you're not a dog. Okay, But the, the story was that Aesop told is that the dog saw it, and because dog, this dog happened to be covetous, he wanted that bone, so he snapped at that dog trying to get that bone, and when he did, the bone that he had in his mouth fell out and went plopped down into the water, and it was gone. And the idea is that illusions can sometimes make you lose things that you have, trying to get things you don't have and can't get. Remember what the devil did to Adam and Eve? He said, oh, you should eat of the forbidden fruit. You'll be like God. They already were like God. They were made in the image of God. They were as much as a creature can be like God already. And that's why, note this, when you're tempted or tried, the devil comes to you and tells you, oh, you can have this. Don't worry, just go ahead and sin. You can, you can be fulfilled. You can be happy. You can be whatever. You know, go ahead and do this sinful behavior. 
you'll, you'll, you'll be a satisfied, happy person. Okay, how many men have been tempted into adultery thinking, oh, I'll be so happy, and what do they do? They destroy their lives and their families. Happens with women also. Okay, how many times has someone thought, oh, I can steal this and no one will know, and then their reputation is destroyed, and they can go to prison sometimes, and they lose so much of their lives because they were tricked into thinking, oh, if only I sin against God's law, then I'll be fulfilled. And that's what the devil does. Paul says we're not ignorant of his methods. So if someone comes and says to you, oh, you know, that's nice that you guys have your simple worship. You know, you guys come together. And no stained glass. Oh, well, you know, by the way, we're not any better than anybody else. Stained glass churches preach the gospel often, okay? But I'm just saying, someone can say, oh, you guys don't have all the rituals that we do. I mean, we're, our, you know, our worship is really beautiful. I've had so many people tell me that, oh, I, I go to this church because the worship is so beautiful. True worship is beautiful. Carnal worship is visually very beautiful. Okay, and by the way, some people are doing things and it has a beauty about it. it. Doesn't necessarily mean it's idolatrous, all right? But we have to be careful. What, who is worship about? But when someone comes and says, you know, you guys, you really should introduce some of these other things. It would be so much nicer. It would really help people if you guys had a few more ceremonies. Okay, fine. Show me the Bible. If we should be doing it. We'll do it. But it's not in the Bible, don't ask us about it. Paul's saying, don't let anybody beguile you of the new kingdom. Let no one cheat you. That's an imperative. You've got to work on this. Let no one cheat you of your reward. What's the reward? Knowing God, knowing his love in your life, having his power working in you, in sanctification and holiness, leading you in good works and, and in the fellowship of God's people, loving your brothers and sisters, having families at peace and that are happy. So don't let anybody cheat you of your reward. Taking delight, it says, in false humility and worship of angels. And that's that, you know, introducing ceremonial reverence toward the spiritual beings other than God. Intruding into those things which he has not seen. Note where this comes from, puffed up by his fleshly mind. So, as we are not to tolerate condemning judgments from carnal men to beat us down and make us feel alienated from God, our Heavenly Father... So also we're not to tolerate those who may appear to be more pious than we are, yet desire to draw us away into idolatrous worship of angels, saints, or anything other than having a true faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. If you have Jesus, you have everything already. You don't need a bunch of ceremonies. That's what he's saying. We read about those false prophets. Those who call their imaginations visions from God and claim communion with spirits are lying, is what Paul is saying. They intrude into things they have not seen. Now, they may be demonically inspired, but they're certainly not from God. They're not what they claim. No matter what they may claim, they don't draw their life from the head. That's what Paul says. Note this. Because they are not of the body, the church. Note what he says. The people that do this, he says they're puffed up, he is, the person that does that by his fleshly mind, in verse 19, note, and not holding fast to the head. The head is Christ. He's the head of the church. That's why it's capitalized in your Bible. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. If you're part of the true church, you're not talking about the institution, okay? Although they do kind of overlap. If you're part of the body of Christ, you receive your life, your nurture, your spiritual uh, nourishment, food from the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, by being joined to Him by 
faith. And as that happens, as we're in fellowship one with another, there's that sanctifying aspect that John talks about in his first epistle. Remember, he says, if we, I quoted a lot because I love that verse, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So wait a minute, what's that saying? It's saying if you're in fellowship with God's people, I mean real fellowship, there's a sanctifying element to that. And I know this sounds like, well, that's your job to make us feel bad about not being in church, right, Pastor? No, it's not, actually, but I want to encourage you. When you're in church, when you come, and it, not, when I say in church, you, know, you think, oh, you mean Sunday morning service? Yes, I do mean that. But also, Bible studies, fellowship, having friendships with people in God's church, building a community of believers. When that happens, there's a cleansing aspect that takes place. Because as we fellowship in the Word of God together, and that mutual edification, we change. We tell our children sometimes, be careful who you pick as friends, because you become like the people with whom you associate. That's absolutely true. The Bible even says that. Paul says, don't be deceived. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Okay? You hang around with immoral people and blasphemers and wicked people, you'll become like them. It'll, it'll carry over. So who should you be hanging around? Find those that fear God, that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that are endeavoring to, endeavoring to walk according to the gospel. Make those your truest friends. Where they gather, you be there. It'll have an effect on you, and you'll thank God for it. It'll be keeping you from things that are bad. Be with people that won't be introducing you into to temptation and sin. Okay. So what he's saying here is these people that are doing this, that are judging you and that are trying to introduce false ceremonies and the worship of spirits, that they're not joined to Christ. Paul's pretty strong here. He's not saying this is a... Now, we do have Christians that get caught up in that stuff, and so we want to be gentle and give the judgment of charity where possible. But when you have someone that's not interested in worshiping God according to his word, there's a problem there. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying the people that are introducing this garbage are not Christians, is what he's really saying. They're religious, but he says uh, that's all they are. Those who are in fellowship and joined by the Holy Spirit vitally to Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are nurtured by him and his church through that which every member brings to the others by the word of God, by love, by fellowship, prayer. They're connected to Christ. The living body, when that happens, grows in grace and love, and it's really a beautiful thing. Verse 20, therefore, he says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and by the world, it doesn't say earth, he's talking about the world, he's talking about the fallen world of men. You died with Christ from the basic principles. You're not under control of spirits and demons. You don't have to check a horoscope to find out what your day is going to be like. As a matter of fact, you just stay away from occult things like that. He said, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. In other words, is your religion all external? Now, there are some things Christians shouldn't be handling, okay? Uh, there are certain regulations, and we know some things are just flat-out violations of God's law, okay? And we need to stay away from those things. But this is like where someone say, oh, don't touch that, it's, it hasn't been ceremonially cleansed. Paul says, why do you subject yourself to that kind of foolishness? He said, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That's their religion. It's, you know, 
I don't speak, what is it, I don't uh, drink, smoke, or chew, nor hang around with them that do, <laughs> okay? Uh, that's not what Christianity is. By the way, there's reasons to, for some not to drink, smoke, or chew. Okay, I'm not recommending alcohol or tobacco. Uh, but I'm just saying that when someone makes that their religion, and I've met people who are so pleased with themselves because they don't drink at all, period. I knew one guy, he was like, he, he was proud when he told me this. He didn't know he was being proud, but he, he let me know. He said, I want you to know, Pastor. He said, I don't drink coffee. I'm like, okay, fine, I do, okay. But he was really proud of himself that he didn't drink coffee. You know, and some say, well, for health reasons, blah, blah, well, whatever. Okay, that's debatable too. But the point is, if your religion is based on touch not, taste not, handle not, something's missing. You want to know what it is? Jesus Christ loving him and loving others. Okay? Paul says these things, they, things which perish with the using. These are not permanent, eternal truths. He said that's foolishness when you build your religion on touch not, taste not, handle not according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So Paul's not speaking about obedience to God's word, but against man-made religion with all of its rules and ceremony. I love it, you know, sometimes you, know, I, you hear me speak against the system of theology known as dispensationalism, because they'll say, well, we're in the age of grace now, the law of God says nothing to us. You know, we're not under the law. Well, no, we can't condemn us, but the law, the Ten Commandments, speak to us as image bearers, and you better be doing them. But people say, well, I'm not under the law. I was asked, well, which of the commandments are you interested in not keeping? Uh, idolatry, the one against idolatry, against blasphemy, uh, against adultery, against murder, against theft. You really don't think you have to keep those? And then, you know, they, they'll have their circumlocutions to get around that. But then if you, like some of those churches, when you say, well, I think I'd like to join your church, then they bring out this big, this big, thick volume, basically, I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit. And they go, well, yeah, we don't, we're not under the law of God, but here's the rules you have to follow to join our church. Okay? It's like, whoa, wouldn't it be a lot easier just to be under the law of God in regard to my Christian walk? So Paul's talking about the doctrines and commandments of men, and there's tons of that stuff out there. That's why it's important to take what we believe and what you believe personally. Go to the Word of God. Say, Lord, am I living and am I worshiping you in a manner pleasing to you? Nothing wrong with that. That's how the Reformation started. When people got a hold of the Bible, they looked at it and said, are we doing everything that God tells us, and are we doing a bunch of stuff he tells us not to? That was the Reformation, in a nutshell. They said, whoa. It's like King Josiah, when he got the law of God, he tore his, you know, he heard it, ripped his garment, he said, woe is us, we've sinned against the Lord. That's what happened in those first generations at the Reformation. People said, God's word's really clear how to worship him, and all this junk we're doing with masses and Mary and popes and bishops and all this stuff, it's not in the Bible. What are we doing? We've got all these ceremonies. You know, we've got all the candles. We've got all the bowing and all the scraping and you know the, the images set up there. God says not to do that stuff. Sometimes it's you know just a matter of indifference on some of those things, but for the most part, introducing that as, well, this is the true and acceptable worship of God, and it's just absolutely not in the Bible, that's wrong. Paul wanted the church in Colossae to know who they really were. They had died with Christ when he died to the basic principles of this fallen world. And they're no longer going to be controlled by those things. They are no longer controlled by those things. Christ alone is to be Lord in his church, in the lives and consciences of his people. 
So when you have these frowning individuals that tell you you're not doing the right ceremonies or you didn't know the magic word, they wouldn't say that, but something along those lines. Uh, you didn't follow the approved formula that we have determined. You say, well, show me in the Bible. Well, you know, I, I got in trouble with one brother who I consider him a brother in Christ. But I told him, I said, the church is, is administrative, not legislative. We administer the word of God. And he didn't like that. He was in a denomination that had a lot of ceremonies. And he's like, well, he said, we can make rules and laws. I said, well, if they're according to the word of God, yeah. And so he kind of like, let's let it drop, because he knew it wasn't going to get too far with me on that. We're still friends, but um, the church is administrative. We administer what scripture says. We don't legislate. We don't make laws up. Okay, We're not a legislative body. So Christ wanted the Colossians to know who they were. They were no longer under the control of the elements of this world. Christ alone is Lord of the conscience of his people. So if someone says, you, you shouldn't be doing that, well, maybe you shouldn't. Ask them to show you in the Word of God. And if they show you, then you shouldn't be doing that. But if they say, well, you know, we've just decided that because we love Jesus, and it's, it's really, it would be really helpful. You go, where's it in the Bible? Just show me in Scripture. That's all I'm asking. And if they go, well, I can't really show you in the Bible, they say, well, then I don't have to do it. Show me in the Bible. You know, the children, when they're confirmed, people, when they join this church, one of the things we ask them, uh, if they agree to submit uh, to the government of this church in all things biblical. And, you know, the reason why I always explain that when we're going through the questions, and some of you know that, it's because what we're saying is no one in this church can ask you to do anything that's not in the Bible. And if someone says, well, we've all decided to wear purple hats, okay, you can go, that's great, but when I became a member of Grace Presbyterian Church, that wasn't part of my membership vow. And I'm not going to do it unless you can show me in Scripture, okay. No one has the right to introduce ceremonies and legislation in the church except what God has already introduced. The danger in the church is, is not, um, oh, you might be too strict in the Bible. The danger is extra, you know, we know sola scriptura is what we're talking about, using the Bible. It's not sola scriptura that's the problem, it's extra scriptura, rules and religious regulations that men make to accompany their man-made ceremonies and posturing. Those things are laughable in light of the gospel and the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, his lordship, and the authority and power of his word. Paul is condemning the, uh, all, you might say, all man-made religion with its feasts, ceremonies, fake holidays, Sabbaths. He condemns not God's law, but man's innovations. And then finally in verse 23, Paul is addressing it, says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion. They look really pious, these people do. In false humility, oh, they're so humble. You know, they're devoted to the sacred heart of Jesus or to the Virgin Mother or something. Wow, they really seem pious. And harsh treatment of the body, asceticism. Oh, Luther's almost killed himself fasting and with flagellation, whipping himself, trying to show that he really was sorry for his sins. He said, if monkery could have saved anyone, it would have saved me because I did more than all of them. He said it didn't do anything except uh, destroy, you know, hurt my conscience and make him more aware that he was you know, not right with God. All these things, the appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and harsh treatment of the body. He says, but these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, when they opened up the monasteries in Europe, I'm not going to go into the details, but they found them to be dens of iniquity. The convents in the same thing when they found the bones of babies in the basements of so many of them. We don't hear too much about this because it gets suppressed, but if you do a little research, you can find out. 
the reason why the monasteries were shut down in England is they were uh, basically places of immorality. Uh, the, the vow of celibacy was not being kept quite plainly. There was all kinds of immorality. But oh, they had the ceremonies, and oh, they were so pious and oh, so humble. But the reality was they didn't have the Spirit of God sanctifying them, and their flesh was raging out of control. Just because something or someone looks religious doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. So, well, how do we know what's pleasing to God? Sola Scriptura, the Bible first and foremost, the Bible only. doesn't mean you can't read other books, okay? The opposition, I'll say, oh, you guys believe you can only read the Bible, but you can't read history. I just talked about Chrysostom's sermons, okay? You read everything you can, all right? Good stuff, don't read garbage. But if you want to search history and read... Read the liturgies where all the ceremonies get to know this stuff. You sometimes you have to if God calls you to do it. But read your Bible. That's how you find out what's pleasing to God. And that's how you find out that God is pleased with you through Christ. God delights in your worship. You know, to me, that's an encouragement. Flaky as I am, God accepts my worship sanctified by Jesus Christ. I can actually worship God, and so can you. He hears your prayers. He loves it when you pray to Him. As a matter of fact, His Holy Spirit is the one prompting you to do so. He wants you to be a worshiper. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? God is the Spirit, and those who worship Him will worship Him in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. God delights when we worship Him in Christ, according to His Word. The monastic movement, as I mentioned, of monks and nuns and monasteries and convents didn't do much more than steal the inheritances from the nobility's sons, who they suckered into taking vows of chastity so that when they died, their estates went to the church. And tens of thousands of young women who were duped out of becoming married women with families, and they lived you know, lives locked in uh, convents. And very wicked system. It was an attack upon the family structure that God himself had established at the beginning of history. Looked really pious. Again, in the movies, you know, the monks are always very pious people. Monkery is an abomination, I believe. Now, some says, well, God does call some people to celibacy. Yes, he does, but it's not an enforced celibacy where you take vows. You just live your life. If you're single, you live your life single. Nothing wrong with that. But the whole monastic movement, so say, well, yeah, but it started out okay. Yeah, it started out what? To help people. That's how it got introduced early on, actually. But it's a perversion of what's taught in the Bible. That is, well, if you're married, you're not quite as well. That's why they had the monastery, so the monks could get away from those second-class Christians that were husbands and wives and had children. because They're not as holy as we are. So they'd, they'd go up in the monastery, the girls were tricked into joining a convent. By the way, convent doors are locked, and they have bars on the windows, okay? Uh, fake religion is deadly, damning, and destructive of the creation ordinances of work and of worship and of marriage. It's enmity against God and the cross of Christ and his finished work. Every false worship is bad. We've got to go by the Bible. That's what Paul's saying. Let no one, no one, judge you in food or drink or in regard of a festival or new moon or Sabbath, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. Let no one, gee, that's an imperative. Don't put up with this stuff. Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. 
Therefore, if you've died with Christ on the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Trust Him, love Him, and through Him worship God. Let's pray. Father, we ask You to bless us now and be with us and seal Your Word to our hearts by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we fail miserably in worshiping You as we ought to, but we thank You that Nevertheless, your spirit helps us. You quicken us. You enliven us. You work in our hearts and minds. You create in us a, a clear understanding of what you've done for us. And so you bring forth that, that gratitude, Lord, that you delight to see. And our worship proceeds from that, Lord. We do thank you. We do give thanks to your name. We worship you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the simplicity of worship and the beauty of it, Lord, that we have fellowship with you and with one another. So be with us now, Lord. Make us and create in us those things that are pleasing to you and help us to really become true worshipers who worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in spirit and in truth, through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And we have a closing hymn.